AC and Effers. Booking has been a bit of a bear in 2022. What does that mean for CNF Pod? Is this the end? Are we done? Stick a fork in us? Maybe if we can elevate the discourse, we can stop this podcast from ramming headlong into an iceberg. And they call it the Groover because in in back in the day they used to use ammo cans, those you know metal ammo cans that you buy that you can buy at the uh, what do you call it the army surplus stores, and they called them Groovers because when you sat on them they would groove your ass. When you get up to 330 of these sons of bitches, you build a bullpen of incredible people and friends you can tap on the shoulder with nary 24 hours notice and say, friend, can you come on for an emergency podcast? And then someone like Kim H. Cross, New York Times bestselling author of What Stands in a Storm and the author of The Stall House, uh, Best American Sports Writing and Year's Best Sports Writing Anthology... If you follow me, she's anthologized in the anthology, making her an anthology. Replies to your electronic mail by saying, I'm slammed, but for you, I'd walk through fire. And my God, did my heart sing the mightiest riff. Keep the conversation going at CNF Pod on Twitter or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram or not. Consider heading over to our Patreon page or not, to help support this enterprise. It's a big ask, I get it. I'm already asking you for time to spend with the show, and on top of that, I have the audacity to ask for two or four bucks a month, or even ten dollars a month. Uh, but those dollars, man, oh man, do they mean a lot. Helps put money in the pockets of writers for the audio magazine. I'm making headway on the hero issue, I swear. What also means a lot are kind reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you leave one, I'll read it right here. We've got a nice collection, but in this day and age, you really have to have quite a bit, especially with no name recognition, like me. I have no idea if they actually make the podcast more visible, but I do know that if the wayward CNFer is passing by the podcast farmer's market and sees how many written reviews you've contributed, 122 to date, that's ratings and reviews, but it's over 70 or more than 70 written reviews. Unbelievable. Uh, they're more likely to give this podcast uh, a chance. And that's all we can ask for. Get them in the door so we can serve up amazing riffs. Show notes to this episode and a billion others at brendanomera.com. <laughs> there you may also sign up for the Up to 11 Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. This is where it's at, CNFers. I'm not one to hang out on social media, but I am one to put a lot of effort into my kick-ass newsletter that entertains, gives value, I hope, and sticks it to the algorithm right up the algorithm's keister. If that's your thing, sign up. Been doing it for a lot of years. First of the month, no spam. As far as I can tell, you can't beat it. Well, Kim H. Cross, what can I say? She bailed my ass out this week after someone canceled on me a last minuto. And Kim and I talk about organizing systems, uh, movie soundtracks we listen to while writing, uh, flow, originality, modeling, and more. I made a questionable edit in this episode uh, about cutting out something I was talking about regarding originality. Uh, basically, it was this uh, an essay I'm writing that is uh, in the form of a screenplay. Okay, so there's the edit. But it took me like 90 seconds to talk about it. So I cut it out because who wants to hear me talk for 90 seconds? Oh, shoot, I have been... Wow. Okay, I think that's it. Let's get after it, CNFers. Your time is valuable. <laughs> 
think compartmentalizing is, is a, as you put it, a really good word because I do have to kind of um, structure my day a little bit. And sometimes I, I'm able to do that with more success than others. But, you know, I try to structure my day so that I, I get up, I get my son off to school, and then I sit down immediately and start start writing. And I try to not schedule any phone calls or meetings or other interruptions until after lunch, which is why we're talking after lunch. Um, <laughs> inevitably, though, I have so much going on. I've um, got, you know, coaches and parents texting me about the race this weekend. And I, we have a little server discord where I'm constantly toggling over to answer questions and tell them what to pack and remind them to do this and that. So it doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> so I try and I try to prime people not to, you know, bother me during the morning, but, um, but yeah, it doesn't always work. I used to be able to get up really early in the morning when I had a, uh, regular day job, I would get up at 4.30 in the morning. And this is when my son was really young. And it was the kind of the only time I had to myself. Mm -hmm. I'd go to the gym and take a spin class and it would kind of rev my brain up for the day. And then I would um, go to work and I didn't start work until nine, but I would sit down at seven and I would write for a couple hours before my workday started. And that um, usually there was no one else in the office. And that, that really helped me kind of prioritize the I call them the golden hours, but mm. now that I'm a freelancer and I live at home, it's really kind of impossible to get up at four 30 and, um, I still don't sleep very well. And, and so, um, yeah, you just, I try to make it the priority though. First thing in the morning, sit down and write. To, to me. And I, I've talked to my wife about this too. Like the, to me, the, the bar of success for me is, would just be to not have to have an alarm clock in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, just kind of wake up when your body feels like it's been rested and then you can like start your day. I don't know how possible that is, if it'll ever happen. But like, to me, like if I can ever get to that point in life, that'll be success for me. <laughs> nice. Well, I have to admit, that's actually what I do. I very rarely use an alarm Nice. and I, I used to just be kind of a slave to the alarm and the schedule when I had to be at work and it's, it was the only thing I could do. And I, often felt really tired. And now as I get older, I believe that sleep is medicine. Yeah. And I notice that if I'm, you know, as a, a coach, uh, I'm the head coach of the high school mountain bike team. And so we do pretty, pretty intense two hour workouts, um, two or three days a week. And so I found as an athlete and a writer, if I push my body and I don't get enough sleep, I get sick. I can do one or the other. I can pull all nighters or most nighters or I can push my body. But if I do both like clockwork, I get sick. And I've always been that way ever since I was younger. So now I just try to prioritize sleep as well. But for the most part, you know, I'm, I'm up and going by, by eight or nine, I'm, I'm starting to write. Yeah. And when you, when you were talking earlier about having to juggle, uh, you know, parents checking in about various things uh, for, for your team, a lot of that stuff can really splinter your attention. And it, that is like one of the things that is just so, so hard to harness, especially this day and age, given social media, mm -hmm. email, you name it, all various responsibilities. You know, it can, your, your attention is so finite and also so splintered most of the time. Uh, so, and I, I, and I, I just read I, in my email, James Clear's uh, email from the Atomic Habits stuff. And he, he wrote something about like sometimes high performers, their best, they are high performers because when they get off track, when their attention gets splintered, they're able to get back on track. 
So maybe for you, how do you, how have you managed to get back on track when you're successful getting back on track? Ooh, that's a good question. And uh, have we talked about Atomic Habits or did you just bring that up randomly? Uh, I just brought that up randomly. Yeah. Okay. Cause I just read that book and I actually made my, my students on my team and my coaches, you know, I read the book because I thought it was so useful. I think there are different cues that help me get back in. And one of them is I have um, a really, really nice pair of noise canceling Bose headphones. Nice. And they're, they're the really big ones that cover your ears and just the act of putting them on. Like when I feel that on my ears, I sort of get to tune the world out and then um, I have a couple playlists that are writing playlists. And I, I find that when I do that, it really helps me focus and it often drowns out the little pings that are going off on your phone and the little noises in the rest of my house and my mother's miniature Yorkies who are pretty much the enemy of my focus. <laughs> <laughs> Their barking is just my, my, yeah, my nemesis, my enemy, but the music that I tend to listen to, I either have, um, you know, kind of ambient music that has no words, or I have a playlist of, of, um, this sounds so cheesy, but I have a playlist of cinematic movie scores and they kind of evoke the emotion, the, the actual physiological feeling that I want to generate in the reader. And, and so when I put those on, it kind of puts me in that mind to, to make words that I hope will produce that emotion, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of like Michael Giacchino's soundtracks. Uh, it's specifically, I've been listening to a lot lately uh, from The Batman, uh, which mm. which he did. And that's just a real, as you can imagine, a very brooding kind of very like deeply emotive kind of thing. Grim, kind of gritty. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, this might make music aficionados uh, bristle, but I, I like a lot of Hans Zimmer uh, soundtracks like Inception, uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm gonna, I, I won't pronounce his last name, but Lug, Ludwig something or other. Uh, he did like Black Panther soundtrack, but also Tenet, and uh, so a lot of those instrumental things too. I find, to your point, a very evocative of mood, and uh, it kind of creates a sort of sonic cocoon where you can really just uh, lean into the work, and you kind of everything else just kind of melts away. So when I'm writing something playful, I really like the Amelie soundtrack, Jan Tiersen, and um, I, I've gone on sort of binges of discovering his other work. And right now I'm writing something set in Afghanistan. And so I'm listening to, Peter Gabriel did an amazing soundtrack for The Last Temptation of Christ. And I've actually never seen that movie. And I refuse to see the movie because the soundtrack is so powerful to me. <laughs> huh. So... Um, that's what I'm listening to right now. That and uh, the English Patient soundtrack, which is uh, really kind of moody and intense. Yeah, and speaking of a playful soundtrack, too, uh, uh, Ratatouille, the Pixar movie. Mm -hmm. That one's really great because I, I love those those Parisian sounds you know, of, of accordions and all all sorts of acoustic instruments like that. And also, if there's if a woman is singing in French, I just I just love I I, I can't get enough of that. And oh, it's, absolutely! Yeah, and it just really put it really puts you there, and that's kind of a joyful uh, soundtrack to be creating too as well. It's really fun. Nice, nice. The other thing that's kind of cool about music too is that it can help you with pacing. So I think about narrative pacing a lot. And when I was writing uh, What Stands in a Storm, I actually looked up the the structure of a symphony, of different symphonies. And I 
you know, looked at the different kind of movements and I know nothing about music, so I'm probably even using the wrong terms, but I, I thought about how, you know, symphonies have different um, parts of them where, you know, there's a really dramatic part and there's kind of a slow part and that it's not the same kind of tempo and pace and intensity the whole time. And so I really tried to think about that, I think, when I was structuring a, a book, a book-length story. In a way, that's kind of like you know, modeling in a way, you know, a structure model by using different disciplines for, um, for a chapter intro that I was working on. Um, I was really, I, I was challenged to elevate the writing somewhat. I, if I have a crutch sometimes, not a crutch, if I have a, Oh, let's see a weakness. Sometimes my writing can be a bit too conversational and maybe not evocative enough, uh, mainly because I don't want to overwrite anything. And so sometimes as a result, sometimes I, almost don't describe anything uh, mm -hmm. and just like lay out very sparse details and let the reader piece it together. But I, I was challenged to be like, Brendan, you need to elevate the writing. And so I was like, all right, how can I do this, but not be too, Oh, uh, too cliche or whatever. So I was just kind of, uh, as Glenn Stout would say, like shotgunning leads. And I, I went mm -hmm. through a bunch of John McPhee starters and I landed on the, the start of the Pine Barrens, which is, you know, really descriptive of a particular landscape. And that was kind of what I was getting at. And uh, so maybe for you when in, in magazine pieces or, or books, you know, what are some models that you have leaned on to help you maybe crack the code of something you're looking to elevate? Oh, that's a good question. I think reading beginnings and endings are, is, is really important. I'm trying to think if there are any specifics I can give you. And I know there are, they're just not coming to mind. In the end of What Stands in the Storm, I was really thinking of the ending of A River Runs Through It and how it kind of gets really, you know, big and transcendental and abstract in, in a good way. And so I was trying to, to do that a little bit. But yeah, that's the only specific thing I can think of. But I know that, you know, I, I will often go and read something that, that I think is really good to kind of just internalize the rhythm of the language and the feeling it evokes. Like for me, a lot of it is how um, how the words evoke um, emotion. And I read things aloud a lot to hear the cadence and flow. And that, you know, I think has an influence on emotion. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it, it also underscores this thing that there's nothing really original anymore. Like you don't have to put that pressure on yourself to like make this thing something that's never been done before. Like odds are it's been done before in some capacity or some shape or, and you can go back, you can go to those wells and like using this modeling technique and be really take the pressure off yourself. Be like, oh, okay, I, I can kind of not plagiarize, but I can sort of take the stencil of this and then use my own spray paint to paint over it. And it's just like, okay, I can color within these lines that so-and-so did, but I can do it with my own words and my own reporting. And I, I think that just takes the pressure off of having to be, you know, that pressure to be original. I guess. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree. You, you have to, um, so, so much art is derivative, but I, I do think it is fun to kind of think like, Hey, has, you know, is there something you can do here that's never been done? And not every story needs to be that, but I think it's fun to believe that it still is out there, that it still exists, but not every story needs to be that. And that the tools, you know, you can, you can turn to similar tools and if you use them in new ways, then, you know, you can, um, you can come up with something that is original. That's what I like to believe anyway. 
Oh yeah, I, I can't forget that up. I'm talking to someone who wrote a palindromic uh, <laughs> bicycling feature, so I, I have to remember my audience here. <laughs> well, I, I always like to swing for the fences, and I think that it's fun to to try to see the world in a way that maybe, probably someone has seen it, but you're not always deliberately going, you know, after the thing that you've seen. I'm doing this. One of the stories I'm working on is about this mountain biker named Braden Bringhurst, and he. What makes him such an interesting character is he will go to a trail that um, people who are really good riders, pros even, have ridden hundreds of times, and he will interpret in a way that they have never seen. Like he'll go, and um, I'm going to geek out on mountain biking terms, but sure. he'll go to a bike park where there are you know little little hills of dirt that that can be jumped, and you know if you jump two of them, it's called a double, and he'll see a triple where no one else has seen a triple. And I've talked to, I interviewed a number of people and they just say, yeah, he just sees the world in such a different way that, you know, this thing that's already been ridden a hundred times, he, he's, he rides it a, a way that it's never been ridden before. And I, I love the idea that, you know, you can take this, you know, path or the story or the structure that has been done before, but, you know, with a fresh eye or a little inspiration, you can, you can pull it off in a way that hasn't been done before, or maybe just a way that's uniquely yours. It gets you back to this whole idea of play and actually having fun with it because it can often be uh, – sometimes we can just take ourselves a little too seriously. So it kind of breaks you out of that shell to have some fun with it. You know, absolutely. And it's funny because um, I was thinking the same thing. I've been working on some really, really serious and heavy stories. I'm working on a a book about a really famous kidnapping and murder, and it – you know, it, it's – it's impossible not to, to kind of be pulled into the vortex of the, the darkness of it. And um, then I'm writing about this, you know, about the evacuation of, of women from Afghanistan. And man, you just can't avoid the gravity of those stories. And recently I, I went on a, a river trip for kind of another future book project. And it was a writing retreat on the river, which was really cool, uh, something I've never done. And on the, the last night, they, they challenged everyone to do like a, a talent night, like you would have on the last day of summer camp <laughs> and to write something and perform it and, you know, read it and do a talent. And, and so I, I, I don't know why I did this. They, they have this thing on the river called the Groover and it's the toilet. So when you go on an overnight river trip, especially in a wilderness area, you have to pack in a toilet and pack out your waste. And so the river guides have um, this thing called the Groover and it's basically a big box that has a toilet seat on it and it gets sealed up and, you know, goes back on the boat with you down the river. And they call it the Groover because in, in back in the day, they used to use ammo cans, those, you know, metal ammo cans that you buy, that you can buy at the, uh, what do you call it? The army surplus stores. Yeah. And they called them Groovers because when you sat on them, they would groove your ass. <laughs> <laughs> groups in your ass so anyway at on every river trip the you know the guides have to explain uh especially to, to people who ha are new to the river um like this is these are the rules of the groover and they they set it off in a private place and they they lay a paddle across the trail and uh that's the key so if the paddle's laying across the trail in a certain way you know that someone's in the groover and um and then they, they have a whole like you know you, you pee in the river but you poop in the groover and then you've got to like you know put, put sanitizer in and all this stuff so anyway there's just like the culture of the groover is unique to, to river trips and so for my talent night performance i wrote a song about the groover <laughs> and i um what's really fun to do is you take a song that you you know you know by heart and then you take the melody and you overwrite the lyrics in the song i 
I picked was really, you know, the, the very serious hallelujah, <laughs> which made it even more absurd. So like all that to say, I think there's a great value in, in being playful and, and just having fun and writing like, you know, writing something that's just a joy and fun and funny to write, writing something that makes you giggle that, you know, may never see the light of day, but the, the act of it kind of balances out the gravity of, of the serious writing. And then it, it, I don't know, it challenges a different part of your brain. And anyway, my Groover song made me very happy. It also made the river guides happy. And they said that they would, they wanted to sing it to future guests on future trips. So who knows my, my Groover legacy may live on. (laughs) (laughs) I dig your Groover tunes, man. I dig your Groover (laughs) tunes. (laughs) Do you have any like idiosyncrasies with your, with your like when you need when you're looking to get into the get into the flow of things like what has to be in place for you so you can feel comfortable to sit at the desk you know i'm really particular about like the height of the desk and the chair like if it is not ergonomic and comfortable it it's pretty agonizing for me but i also have like chronic pain from starting my career with 17 hour days that in a non-ergonomic setup so I just say like I always have um, a glass of water and usually my cup of coffee, my headphones and my music. Um, you know, I like to have a, a pad of paper and a pen nearby because I'm I sometimes like scratch things down or draw will draw a structure or something on the on the paper. Um, right now I haven't done this in a while, but I have these um, what do you call them? They're you know foam boards with pictures of my characters on them and pictures of the setting mm. and um what are they called we had a word for them at southern living we would take them to pitch meetings um i'll think of it in a minute it's like an idea board but there's there's a real name for it and it has like you storyboard. know maps a storyboard maybe it's but it's not a storyboard in the way that like it's piecing out the structure of the story it's uh-huh. just um kind of you know imagery and maps and inspiration and setting. And, and so I think, I don't know, I try to, I try to write really visually and especially when there's a place that you haven't been before, I have to constantly be looking at pictures and different angles and um, Google earth plays a huge role in, you know, my reporting when I have to write about a place that I've never been. Cause I, I study the heck out of it. And so right now I'm writing about, Afghanistan, this this place called Bamiyan, where the, the big Buddhist statues were. And so I've been Googling about the Buddhist statues and I've been, you know, sort of going in Google Earth and zooming in on the roads and trying to see, you know, get get my bearings in this place and you know how what's the elevation of this place? What's the geology of the place? You know, what grows there? What does it look like? What do people eat there? And this is kind of a different answer to the question that you asked, but you know, if, if I don't have access to Google earth, I do feel like uh, a little bit lost. Like I'm I'm missing a tool. If you're plugged into the internet, like you are, so you have access to Google earth. Mm -hmm. How have you cultivated the discipline to not jump over to Twitter or check email? Mm. Well, I hate Twitter, so that's easy. Um, That's an easy one. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just closing the, um, closing the, have not having email open is a wonderful thing. Like if I just have, um, I usually have a timeline open. So I have, um, that's the other thing we were going to talk about is kind of like systems. And I have, uh, for, for every major story that has 
a lot going on, I create a timeline and it's usually in a spreadsheet on like Google Docs. So I can constantly be updating it and it's color coded. And so I usually have that open and um, I I don't always write in straight chronology. In fact, I I almost never write in straight chronology. So it's, it's a really wonderful reference as I'm jumping around in time to remember kind of, you know, where I was and where I'm going. And, um, and then the color coding helps me kind of think thematically. So I I might color code um, things on the timeline by character or by location or by theme um, or by type of character. So like in my, um, I'm working on a a story about a kidnapping and I have um, blue is for the law enforcement agents who are trying to, to find this, this killer and yellow is for community members who are searching and then pink is for the family. And then, you know, it helps me kind of write from a a certain point of view and, and look at the timeline and and all of the green is, is, is one point of view and all of the blue is a different point of view. So it helps me kind of um, organize my, my thoughts and, and lots of data at once in a visual way. I think I'm pretty visual so um, that's usually open. I think, again, just closing your email. Like, I, I'll try to look at it in the morning. I mean, if, I'm, if I had my perfect discipline, I wouldn't look at my email until, like, 10 or 11. I would just say there's nothing that can't wait until 10 or 11, and at least yeah. in my world. Not everyone has that. Um, like, if you're an editor, you work at an office job, you don't have that luxury. But I do, so I wish I had more discipline to do that. But generally, I'll try to check it, and then I'll – um, I'll close it and, and just leave it closed until like lunchtime. Um, but the other thing that I have found is a really nice tool is I have an hourglass and a half hourglass hmm. and I will try to just, um, you know, flip one over and say like, I'm not going to do anything else um, until I've had my ass in the chair and I've written for this amount of time. And if I'm having a short attention span day, I'll use the half hour class. And if I'm having a good day, I'll use the hour class. And if I have to get up and go to the bathroom, I tip it on its side. So I give myself like a really honest hour. And I think that accountability is is really lovely. And I find that often when I do that, um, I will look over and I have no idea how long the hour class has been empty. I've actually exceeded the goal. So, you know, other people call it the Pomodoro method because some guy invented, you know, or he, he, he used a, um, a tomato shaped egg timer <laughs> to do kind of half hour increments. And this works really well for me. It doesn't work for everyone, but um, I think it's, I think of it as like intervals, you, ha- you know, you, you push really hard and then you take a break. Yeah. I was, uh, I was talking with uh, Alexandra Litton Regalado last week and we were, we got to talking about uh, how to, how to achieve flow in whatever you're doing. And we, we likened it to, to to running like if you're going to go for a run in the morning you know like you don't sit at the edge of your bed or, or in your house or in your garage be like all right come on flow and now I'm going to run it's like right. you run for a little bit and then it's like okay after a while it's going to you'll start to get into that groove and i think artistically a lot of people take the other stance like i got to find that i i got to get that flow state and then i can start writing and it's like, well, no, you got to kind of write your way into it, and then it'll hopefully it'll come. Maybe it won't, but uh, but for you, how do you uh, how do you muscle through that that initial uh, inertia to find some momentum in your writing? Hmm. You know, it's funny because some days just the act of opening the document takes so much. <laughs> 
energy just double clicking to open the word document i know so i tend to just leave it open and (laughs) um you know i think sitting down and you know reading what you've written the day before and then you know fiddling with that and that that's kind of a nice warm-up i don't know just it's just putting one foot in front of the other like running a marathon you just some days it it feels effortless but most days it feels like a lot of work and it's just you know, the act of getting, sitting in your chair and and staring at it. And sometimes just staring at it, even though words aren't magically appearing on your screen, you're processing. And the other thing um, that I I learned from my my dad, who was my first editor when I was quite young, he said that even when you're not writing, you're still writing. And Mm -hmm. so um, if I get, you know, to a point where I'm just feeling burnt out and just like, I feel like I'm literally banging my head against the keyboard and like gibberish is coming out. I'll go and do something um, manual with my hands, like I'll weed. And sometimes I'll listen to music. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast, but just the act of doing something kind of manual, folding laundry, weeding, and I I don't enjoy either of those things. um, It sort of uh, directs your conscious mind and lets your subconscious work on the problem. And sometimes I'll take a nap. Um, Often I will go lie down and just kind of lie down with the intention of like, okay, subconscious, figure it out all right, conscious mind, we're, we're going to, we're going to take a nap. And, um, often when I wake up, I have like a seed of an idea that leads me there. And every once in a while I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like that, you know, here it is. <laughs> I think recently I, I woke up at 3am and I went downstairs and I just like got a pen out and I, I wrote down a, an outline for the story that I had pro- been processing for some months. And then, um, and I got up in the next day and was like, oh, yeah, okay. I, I mean, it's not perfect, but but that, that actually was really useful. So I think it's kind of trusting your subconscious that it's working, even when your conscious mind is not working or is berating your subconscious mind. Because <laughs> we, we kind of have two brains, right? And I think I learned this from sports and the inner game of tennis, that you've got, you've got your conscious mind. And your conscious mind is constantly criticizing your subconscious, which is the part of your brain that knows how to do the thing, whether that's hitting a tennis ball or, you know, riding a mountain bike or, you know, sitting down and making sentences that make, you know, that make sense. Sometimes our conscious mind gets so distracted with pressure and fear and, you know, um, all the things you have to do that it, it, it really immobilizes, you know, the part of your mind in your brain that, that really knows how to do the thing. So you have to distract the conscious mind um, to the point where your subconscious can, can do the work. And so I think, I think that's one of the reasons that, um, you know, working in a cafe or having music on is effective because it's just enough for your, for your conscious mind to have something to, to deal with. It's almost like handing a, a toy to a toddler that you want to distract I was going to say um, a chew toy to a dog. So that's great. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, then you, you get the, you know, that, that part of your, your brain calms down. So, so that the part that really, you know, once you've learned something and it's so ingrained in, in what you do, it's, it's not like you forget how to do it, but sometimes we sit down at the blank page and feel like we've forgotten how to do it. But I think again, that's, that's your conscious mind getting in the way of, you know, the rest of your brain that knows what to do. So, Yeah. It kind of reminds me of sports psychology. So, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I think that's coming out. The image that you're you're saying of just kind of distracting the mind and letting the subconscious do its thing. It kind of reminded me of that. Like sometimes you do just have to try to not think so hard about it and just like let your instincts take over. And especially when you've worked really hard to develop a skill, like 
a skill is basically, you know, neural pathways that are, that are so drilled in that they, they are muscle memory. That's what muscle memory is. And so once you've learned a skill and it is kind of drilled into your muscle memory, you know, you, you don't, yeah, you just don't un- unlearn it. You just get in the way of it. And so, I don't know, I think, I think there's a lot to be um, learned from sports and athletics and, and like the, the physical world that can be translated to the, the mental world. And um, I'm just really fascinated with how, how our minds work and how, how much like the more we develop them, they can get in the way. I think, and, and I think that for that reason, writing has gotten in some ways harder for me. Like it used to be a lot more effortless. I used to just love the act of just putting words on the page and then I'd worry about editing them later. And now it's a lot harder because I think um, you your expectations are higher. And I think those expectations are kind of the enemy of, of the flow state and the, you know, you got to kick the editor out, the conscious editor who's criticizing and looking over your shoulder and you've got to, you know, give them a chew toy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, I totally understand what you, what you're getting at. And I, I feel that way too. Like the more, the more skilled I've gotten relative of course, but the more skilled I've gotten, it, the harder it seems to, to be like, I was, in that passage I was referring to earlier where I was looking for John McPhee as a model, like I was writing this, what ended up only being, I think probably about 200 words. Like that took me a real solid, like 30 to 45 minutes to really like chisel at that, at those words. And usually things just from newspaper training, things just kind of fly out. And it's just like natural. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of, you develop that skill and you go. But for, for some reason, as a, as I was challenged to elevate things, and uh, hopefully it's not coming across too much as overwritten, which I'm sure it is, uh, but it's it's just like I was it was like real labor that I hadn't really experienced before. I'm like, this never used to be like this. I'm like, I'm this shouldn't be this hard. What what the hell's going on? <laughs> what do you think it was? Uh, I think it was just trying to be. Uh, trying to really set the just set the scene and the tone and the landscape that is like forging that will ultimately forge the the central figure of this biography I, I'm writing and so it was like trying to ev- evoke the geography uh, in like the geologic time but also the landscape and how that is really uh, how landscape shaped my particular character and so it's just like trying to trying to paint a really nice evocative picture that is uh, conveying information, but it's also like semi-artistic, uh, elevated to use the term of my agent. So uh, I'm trying to, trying to do that without, uh, you know, let, letting her down and subsequently possible editors who might want to nibble and uh, possibly buy this uh, book proposal. So I do guess you I write think... with an audience in mind when you're writing? Uh, it depends, you know, my my horse racing opinion columns when i used to write those i always had my buddy pete in mind and like cuz he he he'd all he always we just kind of had a good wavelength like that so with the horse racing stuff i always had like him in mind i'm like if i can make him laugh i know i'm on to something good here but with this particular with this particular book i'm kind of like trying to put on the the david moranis hat or even the howard bryant hat you know these great biographers and just trying to build the world of which that we're going to be living in. And so I'm just like trying to, so not particular audience, but I am definitely trying to uh, 
evoke something that I've read from biographers I greatly admire, but no audience per se, not yet. I find like sometimes it's easy if it, it really helps. It's hard when you don't have like with some essays or, or, you know, when you're writing a proposal, you might not have a specific, you know, if you haven't sold a piece, for example, you don't have the advantage of having an audience of like, oh, I know the such and such reader, like the bicycling reader is different from the outside reader. And you can kind of, you know, I feel like that informs a lot of choices about what you include and what you don't. But um, sometimes I trick myself into um, having an audience by opening an email (laughs) and -hmm. writing to a friend, usually a writer friend who likes me and I feel comfortable that they're going to, you know, like what I have to say or something. And then I, I write and I tell them about the story and then little tidbits come out and then I copy and paste them into my draft. <laughs> That's a little, little hack. That's a great little workaround because the, the stakes of writing an email are so low. But mm-hmm. when we're like thinking about writing a long feature or a book, we're like, it's got to be up here, man. <laughs> but but in an email, it's just like, OK, I'm just going to bang this out because I'm like super excited and I want to convey that excitement. And lo and behold, like that's what you should have been writing the whole time. Right. And I think so many of us, too, you know, in our, our little world of narrative writers is small and we know a lot of, of each other. And so it's really easy to get your your peers stuck in your head or your critics. And um, and it's really bad to, to write with especially a critic in your head or a, or a peer that you think like, Oh, I could never write as well as them. It's, it's so much better to be like, Oh, I'm writing to my friend who, or, you know, I'm writing to my mother who loves everything I write or, you know, my agent who, who obviously wouldn't be my agent if she didn't like my writing. And um, it's, it's nice to do that because it relaxes you in a way that I think when you're, um, I don't know, when you're staring at the word document, sometimes it can be very hard to relax. I, you make a, such a great point that I, we get in – I feel like – I don't know if we talked about this on the mics or we, maybe we just talked about it in uh, other conversations we've had. It's like, well, who are you writing for? And so often we get hung up on like who the publisher is. Do we have an agent or not? And it's just like it ends up being kind of a power play just among writer peers. Like who are you trying to – are you trying to impress your writer friends or – or make them bitter or jealous? Or do you actually want to like serve and entertain the audience that your magazine feature or your book is for? And ultimately you want to connect with readers, but I, we get real hung up on a lot of the, uh, the, the fellowships and the grants and the awards and an agent and a big five publisher. And we lose sight of actually, you know what we really need to do here is like serve, serve the readers because that's where your longevity is going to lie. I agree. And if you imagine one one person who might be helped by your story, I think it's really, um, I don't know, it's liberating and it's encouraging and it puts wind in your sails. You think, you know, there might be someone out there who's going through through something. And by reading this story about maybe someone else who's going through something hard, um, it might, I don't know, might put wind in their sails, might make them feel a little bit better or less alone. And I remember when I was, you know, when I first discovered the power of writing in high school it was because the stories made me feel less alone. And that was really, you know, that's tremendous, especially when you're, you know, 13 and you feel so alone. And the, the fact that you can do that, I think is one of the greatest gifts that that writing provides. So remembering that and the act of just kind of imagining that one person out there who might benefit from your story. I think that's, that's a nice place to go. If you feel the, you know, the heaviness of, writing with critics on your shoulders. 
Do you remember what stories you were reading when you were when you were 13, 14 that did make you feel less alone? Oh yeah. Um it's so funny because my my son is uh is a freshman in high school and he's reading um he was assigned a book and I, I wrote to his teacher was like, Oh my god, this is like one of the books that made me want to be a writer. And it was um The Alchemist by mm. Paulo Coelho. And he, um, I think, you know, before I discovered him, I thought that good writing was like fancy writing that had lots of big words and very complex sentences. And, um, his writing was so simple and so, so lovely and, and beautiful that I, I, it was the first time I realized that beautiful writing can be simple or simple writing can be beautiful. And so, um, and it was just so evocative. I think it was rich in imagery and low on the ladder of abstraction. And, and yet it conveyed some pretty big ideas and abstractions, but it did so through those, you know, concrete images. And so um, that was, that was a book that made me feel, I don't know, less alone somehow. So I'm really excited he's reading it. And that actually has inspired a couple of pieces, including the one that I'm, I'm writing now. And then the other book that was a really big deal to me was Into Thin Air. And I remember when I read that, I thought, oh my God, I feel like I'm on the mountain. And this is a nonfiction book. Like, I feel like I feel in a fiction book. And it was, um, I didn't even have the word, I didn't even know the word like narrative nonfiction. But I remember thinking like, I don't know what you call this. Like, I don't know what this is, but this is, I want to do this because I feel like I'm there. And it was that, I don't know, that experience of being transported to a, a place that's not where you are and losing track of time and feeling like you're on the mountain and you're feeling the cold and you're completely immersed in this world. Um, I, that, that was kind of one of my gold standards for a lot of, a lot of years. And um, it's, I'm looking at it. It's still on my shelf. I remember too, I think the, one of the only fan letters I've ever, ever wrote was to John Crocker at outside. And um, I don't think I ever got a response. I think I was in high school, but yeah. <laughs> It, you've touched upon how you color code some of the digital uh, uh, organizational things in Google Sheets. How wedded are you to uh, like paper habits and like when you have lots of paper stuff? How do you access and organize those so you're able to you know easily access them when you're ready to write? Oh gosh, um, it depends on what kind of story and how much paper. Um, you know, I, I go back and forth between digital and analog habits, and I like them both. I really, really am fond of note cards, and I like to put note cards and tape them on the door of my closet in my office to structure things or to organize things. Um, sometimes I'll spread them out over the floor. Sometimes I have color-coded note cards, that, um, and then I, I kind of rearrange them on the floor. And then when they're in the right order, I either stack them in that order and then sit down to write and What's nice about that, it's, you know, you just have a note card in front of you, not like a whole bunch of them. And you can just look at that one note card and write the thought that that note card is meant to provoke. But at some point, you know, you can get too too much and it, you have to make it digital. And that's where I think the digital system that, that keeps evolving. I have a, a massive story organizing spreadsheet and it has different tabs. And the first tab right now, I'm going to open it and sort of describe it. Hang on. Um, so this is for a book and with every book, it's gotten kind of, it's changed a little and it's refined a little bit. And sometimes I go back to analog, but okay. So I'm looking at kind of my master spreadsheet for the book project I have right now, which 
I've got like 12,000 pages of court transcripts that I've been reading. I think I've read through like 2,000. Oh my God. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I have all of those digitized and then they are indexed. So like one tab on the spreadsheet is an index of trial transcripts. And that's useful because, um, you know, they're, one, they're kind of chronologically coded. So I start with the year and then the month and then the date and then the name of the person who's testifying in the, in the trial. And that name is useful because I can, you know, do a command F and search for a last name and then up pops all of the, they might've testified on several days and I can immediately go straight to there and be like, oh, okay. And then the starting with the year, month, day puts everything into chronological order, which I think is really, really important. And that's what I do with documents as well. When I scan documents and I load them into um, my Dropbox folder, um, the date, the naming convention that puts the date first automatically sorts them into chronological order. And I think that's really important. And then the, you know, they, they go into the spreadsheet and the spreadsheet essentially becomes kind of an index, but also a very rudimentary database. So I think the the challenge of a really big, complicated uh, narrative, either a magazine feature or a book, is that at some point you accumulate so much reporting, so much information, so many documents, so many sources that you forget what you have. And the act of trying to remember what you have actually takes mental processing power that you don't, that's wasted. You need to be using that all of that mental processing power into writing. So um, it's almost like having, you know, your brain outside of your head on, on paper. And it's a big relief because you don't have to remember in what order things happen because you can go to your timeline. So my spreadsheet, I've got like the first tab is a to-do list. And when things are done, I just kind of like take it off the top and put it on the bottom. So I can then look down to, to see what I, you know, Oh, did I do that? Yes, I did. And then the next tab is a timeline. And it's uh, the first column is the actual time minute by minute the next column is date, the next column is year, and then event, and then source. And the source is usually a link to um, either, you can you can create a URL for any uh, document or thing that you upload into Dropbox, or it might be the URL of something in Evernote, or it might be the URL of um, a web page, or it might be like, it's in this box in this folder. So I have this box of police files sitting on the ground <laughs> of my office and I'll be like, it's in so-and-so's box in the folder named this. And that way I know I can get back to the primary source quickly. Um, I've got then like a tab for news clippings. So I've got like, oh my gosh, um, this was a really highly publicized case. I've got 170 and they're not even all in here right now, but, but I've logged 170 different articles and they're all kind of sorted into chrono- chronological order. And a lot of them are paper clips. And I have to remind myself, like, in what f- box is this? And, um, and I'll type in keywords that helps me um, kind of get quickly to those. I've got a characters tab. And, you know, I've got, like, a list of FBI agents. And then I've got a list of law enforcement officers. And then I've got a list of family and friends. I'm scrolling down as I'm telling you. And then volunteers and community members, and then witnesses in the trial, and then agencies and experts, media. And um, and those are kind of color-coded in like green means I've talked to them. Yellow means um, I, I really need to try to get this interview done. Red means they um, have died or they said no. And so that's kind of a good like at a glance thing. And then I've got interviews. And this is where I've got all of my interviews filed. And I'll interview the same person, I don't know, in some case, 20 times. And I've done, it looks like I've done like 
200 interviews. Mm -hmm. And so this is where like a a few keywords are really useful. And I, I used to, um, I used to use an app to transcribe these myself, but I have since found Otter, which um, is a, an artificial intelligence company and you can upload your, uh, your MP3 files and they will trans uh, transcribe them. And they're not perfect, but they're pretty good. And you can go through and, you know, click on any part of the transcription and it'll take you to that part of the recording. And that has really been like a life changer. I have to thank my friend, our common friend, Bronwyn Dickey for sharing that with me. Yeah. Um, I love Otter. Yeah. Yeah. And I consider transcribing now when I, Go back and I listen when I transcribe actually podcast interviews. I usually do it at two times speed and clean things up. But for reporting, mm. I'll do it at regular one x speed. And as I and I consider transcribing now, just like cleaning that up, and it lets me mm-hmm. lets me hear it all again, but also clean up that transcript. So yeah, it's it's an incredible tool that just takes away so much of the the grind of transcribing. Ugh. Right. That said, when I'm doing a phone interview, I almost always do a live transcription, like a quick and dirty, because um, a couple of reasons. One, then I don't have to go back and clean up the transcription, but I have it as backup. And two, I feel like the act of, um, I don't know, the act of the thought going from my brain to my fingers on the keyboard puts it, like cements it better in memory for me Mm -hmm. than than if I just listen. So I, I do both. You know, and also because in case the the recorder fails, but um, but yeah, those are kind of those are kind of my hacks. But I will say, um, with how much I travel right now for various things and the number of boxes that are in my office, having things scanned and digitally organized and, and accessible just for my laptop has been really really important because I there was a day when I lugged all of the boxes around and now it's it's just so much easier plus trial transcripts now they have like four pages on one page and my poor eyes are getting worse and so I can zoom in much easier on when I open the document and now you know it's really easy to make little highlights and notes um, when you're in the the PDF then then um, instead of having to go back and make them on paper and then flip through and carry them around, print them out. Very nice. Well, I, Kim, you're super, super tired and overworked right now. And I, I need to be mindful of your time and your energy. So I'm going to, I'm just going to let you get out of here on, on one more thing. Something I always okay. like to ask at the end of conversations is a recommendation for the listeners of some kind. And that can be anything uh, from like a brand of coffee to a pair of socks you really like or a cool kind of pencil. Uh, so I'd extend that to you, Kim. Like what might you recommend out there for, for the listeners? Oh, my gosh. You know, and I thought about this all morning and then I was like, oh, here's the thing. And I'm, I'm trying to remember it now. <laughs> my poor brain. Um, <laughs> let me think. What is what is the thing? Oh, I know. My rice cooker. I was just recommending it to someone. Um, I don't know how anyone in the world cooks rice without a rice cooker. And it is my most favorite appliance. And now these Japanese rice cookers, like they have some with artificial intelligence, but they will, um, you can program them to go off like a coffee maker. You can cook like a million different kinds of rice in them. And they, um, they come with like this little measuring cup that corresponds with the line in the, you know, in the bowl where you put the water, but they're magic because they can keep rice at the perfect eating temperature for like three days and it doesn't go bad. It just dries out. And, um, I think for anyone who is, is really busy, <laughs> like this is, this is a revelation. So, um, my Zoji Rushi induction heater 
rice cooker is my my recommendation. It's life changing. Oh, amazing. Well, Kim, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing all your wonderful insights and coming on and talking shop and this kind of thing. It's uh, always fun to get to hear you articulate how you go about doing doing the incredible work you do. So thanks for coming on and coming on again and, uh, and doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, always, Brendan. It's so, so always so lovely to talk with you. So it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, by the way, uh, make sure you go subscribe to Kim's newsletter and go follow her on Twitter and then tell her thank you because without her, there would have been probably another rerun of some sort this week or nothing, which sucks. You know, we like to keep this thing going in this little podcast like could. So thanks, Kim. You rock. David McCullough, the great historian who will never, alas, be on this podcast, recently passed away. I pulled a great quote out from his New York Times obituary. He said, The reward of the work has always been the work itself, and more so the longer I have been at it. The days are never long enough, and I've kept the most interesting company imaginable with people long gone. I know I always try to remind myself that when I'm in the thick of it, that the only victory the only reward is being able to play the game again and again, being able to put this podcast out week after week, and knowing it helps people, CNFers, in some small way, but it also nourishes me in my myriad dark moments, and they are myriad. We put a lot of stock in awards, fellowships, residencies, agents, publishers, and the status roles that come with it. Suddenly you might be a writer who can say, my agent, to start a sentence. And it's a not-so-subtle hat tip that you're the type of writer for whom that is important. I will say this. I'm working with an agent now at age 42. It's the first time in my life. And Kim Cross is the one who put me in touch with said agent uh, for the baseball memoir. She uh, is really, she really hustled for me on that. We're working on a uh, agent and I are working on a different book altogether, but I didn't necessarily earn this agent's attention via my own rigor and vetting and rising from the slush. But I guess you can say nearly ten years of podcast work and freelancing and other crap has uh, made me elevate through the slush in some way. Uh, my boots are kind of like stuck in mud, but at least they kind of get out before they suck back in. You know what I'm saying. Uh, but we must always come back to that little light inside all of us that drew us to this fucking mess in the first place, that maybe we can write one goddamn sentence with enough exit velocity to leave the ballpark, and that maybe we get to do it again, maybe a little better next time, and for no other reason than the sheer joy of it all. So stay wild, CNFers, and if you can't do, interview. See ya. See ya.